Today's reading is from Psalm chapter 63. Listen now to the word of the Lord. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and with and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of the liars will be stopped. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, welcome. We are uh, now on the eight of nine sermons uh, entitled Sacred Pathways, based on the book by uh, Gary Thomas looking at different ways, different paths that we might worship and love God. And so uh, we've looked at the, the naturalist, the sensate, the traditionalist, the ascetic, the activist, the caregiver, the enthusiast, and today uh, we're going to consider the pathway of the contemplative. Uh, please pray with me. Lord, thank you again for this day that you have made, uh, for your word, and God, that you have created each and every one of us in a unique way. And that uh, there are different ways for us that make sense, different ways that we might pursue you more deeply. And so now, God, as we consider another pathway today, help us to discover ways that we might love you through adoration. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, In my family, one of the uh, favorite books um, of our kids, and ours too, uh, my wife and I, uh, growing up, was a book by uh, Leo Liani called Frederick. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that book. Um, it's, a, it's a really a wonderfully, beautifully written, illustrated book. It's about a group of mice uh, who are busy working day and night, gathering nuts and wheat and straw in preparation for the coming winter. And all the mice are working really, really hard, except for Frederick. When the other mice ask him, Frederick, why don't you work? He says, I do work. I gather sun rays for the cold, dark winter days. Later, when they see him just sitting on a rock while the others are gathering nuts, they ask him again what he's doing, and he says, I gather colors for winter is gray. Then later, when it looks like he's napping and daydreaming, he tells them that he's not dreaming but that he is gathering words. For the winter days are long and many and will run out of things to say. Winter comes and at first it's easy because the mice had gathered plenty of food and have lots of things to talk about. But little by little the food runs out and it gets colder and they run out of things to talk about. So they turn to Frederick and he begins to share what he's gathered 
during the autumn months. He tells them about the rays of the sun and the mice feel warmer. He fills their imagination with colors and it brightens their surroundings. And he tells them stories that cheer them up through the long, cold winter nights. Again, it's it's just a beautifully uh, illustrated, imagined story. Um, Our kids loved it. Uh, My wife and I really loved it. Um, Because it, it teaches that imagination is important. That colors and words are as needful as corn and straw for the community. Maybe even more so. The story is a reminder that we need more than food to nourish us, more than blankets to keep us warm, that our souls long for beauty, for joy, for wonder and awe that can only come through times devoted to such matters. And I think this this story for me points the way of the way of the contemplative. Those on this particular pathway love God through adoration and the use of this, this language of lovers of what is sometimes referred to as divine romance. They point to the book of the Song of Songs, for example, which is a pretty uh, explicit poem about the love and the yearning between a man and a woman. And they interpret it as the love shared between God and his people or between God and an individual. Contemplatives write about mystical union with God. and, And they sometimes blur the line of loving God that crosses into this kind of romantic sentimentality. And, and so for me, um, this is probably the most difficult pathway to talk about uh, because it seems a little, at times, odd, to, to be very frank with you. Uh, I know sometimes that I'm uncomfortable with some of the language that is used by those who follow this pathway. Uh, for example, I can sing with faithful confidence the lyrics, something like, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice, right? I love you, Lord. I, I can say that with, with faithful confidence. But when I sing a song, uh, for example, uh, Matthew uh, Redmond's song, Let My Words Be Few, with the lyrics, the simplest of love songs I want to bring to you, so I'll let my words be few, Jesus, I am so in love with you. Um, because I'm not particularly strong on this pathway, those words, I am so in love with you, Jesus, it, I feel a little awkward saying those words. Because, uh, you know, I think for the most part, most Christians talk about a desire to serve God, to obey God, maybe to celebrate God. Uh, for us Presbyterians, to understand God and to explain God. Um, but contemplatives remind us that there is an emotional component to simply love God, to desire God. They want only to have this attachment to God. For them, the thoughts of a, a loving father or more that of a, a beloved bridegroom is the uh, picture that dominates their imagination of what God is like. They want nothing other than to sit and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. James Houston, who taught spiritual theology at Regent, describes contemplatives in this way, as two lovers do nothing but gaze into each other's eyes, so we gaze lovingly at our Heavenly Father and have our heart's delight satisfied. Uh, Maybe you hear that and some of you are thinking, yeah, I'm not much of a gazer. Uh, Gazing is okay, you know, when you're a teenager, but... Now you've got work, you've got bills to pay, you've got dishes to wash. Uh, Most of us adults tend to want a little more practical spirituality. 
Uh, we might even chide those who just want to sit and gaze, uh, just as Martha did uh, with Mary when there was a lot of work to be done. But we should remember that Jesus affirmed Mary for having chosen the better part. Um, you know, I was talking with uh, Julie this morning, um, and her kids were trying to take um, Matthias, the, the infant, away from her. And she was like, no, no, I want to hold him. I want to hold him. And, and, the kid, and, and I was thinking, you know, when I was a parent with kids that age, like if anybody wanted to take a kid away from me, I was like, please. And I'd like go to the other room and hide, you know, so I can just kind of not have that burden, right? But Julie was saying like, wow, it's, it's so good because, you know, she just missed having like an, an infant and she just wants to just hold him. I mean, that's a kind of gazing, right? Uh, I know for many new parents, like, you know, sometimes you can just, just look at your newborn, just, just sitting there. And you're just in love with that child. Um, you know, and again, um, I'm sure all the, uh, the uh, men here or wives, um, you know, when, you remember a time when you were just gazing at your beloved, right? Um, apologies to my daughter, but, you know, I mean, I still gaze at my wife, you know? Uh, maybe that's too much information. Um, <laughs> right? So, so there is this, 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 this desire, that this longing uh, that this pathway calls us to. Uh, and those who are on this pathway, or those who uh, emphasize this particular pathway, it's not about being, you know, kind of embarrassingly cheesy, nor shirking the responsibilities or getting out of, you know, work, things like that. But they're, they're reminding us that the first commandment that we have is to love God with all of our being. And, and you know, I've, I, I always emphasize that to love God, it's, it's about a decision of the will. It's about doing loving acts. It's acting in a way that is faithful. But there is also in love some emotional component, right? We are to love God with all our being, our minds, our wills, our strengths, our monies, our hearts with our emotions. To be in God's presence, that's the best thing, to be immersed in God's goodness and grace. And and the contemplatives remind us of this. Moses, in his last words of blessing to the 12 12 tribes of Israel, said this about the tribe of Benjamin in Deuteronomy 33. Let the beloved of the Lord rest secure in him, for he shields him all day long, and the one the Lord loves rests between his shoulders. The one the Lord loves rests between his shoulders. I think think that's just a great image of what it is to adore God, to be in love with God, to love God, to rest between his shoulders. That's what contemplatives want. That's what they're practicing. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. I've called you friends. Servants do things out of obedience, out of duty. But friends, it's not about doing anything. It's about being. It's about the relationship. Contemplatives want nothing to do with a kind of a cold and calculated, dispassionate faith that fears hell and and just kind of wants to do things to get into heaven. They want nothing to do with discipleship and obedience out of mere duty and obligation. They... Everything is relational for them. They want communion and the deepest possible intimacy to be in passionate love with God. That's what matters to them. And today's reading, um, again, points us toward this particular pathway. Psalm 63 is a psalm of David. 
uh, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. This is probably a reference to one of the bleakest times in David's life. His son Absalom had felt uh, neglected and mistreated by his father, and so he led a rebellion against David, and David was forced to flee from Jerusalem and to live in exile for a time in the wilderness. So you can imagine, I mean, this is about as terrible a situation as anyone can be in. Um, but for David, in the wilderness, it was also an instructive time. When all the usual comforts were gone, when everything had been stripped away, David discovered or, or rediscovered that he yearned, that he craved God, just as his body desperately wanted water in the wilderness, he discovered that he, he just craved with that same intensity, God. I think, you know, most of us don't want to be in times of wilderness and difficulty, but sometimes it's the only way for us to awaken from uh, spiritual malaise, to, to awaken to these kinds of spiritual truths. It's a time when it forces us to re-examine our lives, to get deeper clarity about our priorities and desires. And, and David writes, my soul thirsts for God. My soul thirsts for God. Um, you know, the word soul, unfortunately, uh, has a lot of uh, bad connotations for us. Because the word soul for us tends to, uh, we associate with this kind of um, a, a wispy, ghost-like uh, part of uh, ourselves, right? The part that's not the body. Um, too often, um, we, we kind of uh, have this sort of um, dualistic understanding of what it is to be human, right? There's, there's the body, and then there's the, uh, either the spirit or the soul or something like that. Um, and, but that is not the way the, the Hebrews understood what it is to be a human being. When they use the word Soul. When you see the word soul in the Old Testament, it almost always means the person, the whole person. The word itself uh, that gets translated as soul is, is nephish. And this is a word that has the, it's originally meant uh, the throat or neck, right? Because everything that is necessary for life goes through the throat or the neck, right? Air, food, uh, water. And so it became to be associated with life. So when they say soul, they don't mean like the spiritual part of the human being or something like that. They're talking about the whole being. So when David says, my soul thirsts for God, he's not saying, you know, my, my spirit is longing for God apart from my body or anything like that. He, he's saying my whole being, my whole being, all that I am is craving God. My entire self wants God. Um, it's a longing that encompasses every aspect of who he is. And he does this because he remembers what it was like in the past, in the sanctuary where he beheld God's power and glory. He remembers this even when he's lying awake in the middle of the night and he recalls how God had been his help. Um, you know, the words that he uses here, the, the sanctuary, the shadow of your wings, you know, these are all words that point us back. Remember last week we talked about the Ark of the Covenant and the, the uh, top of the Ark, there was the, the cherubim with the wings spread over the mercy seat, right? He, he's remembering the times of worship in the sanctuary in Jerusalem when he was feasting, remember when he was dancing with wild abandon. He's remembering that kind of passion for God as he's in the wilderness. And because he can remember that, 
because he recalls what it was like to really love God, he's able now, even in these dire circumstances, he's able to praise God with hope. He says, because your steadfast love is better than life, because I know this and have experienced this, therefore my lips will praise you, I will bless you, I will lift up my hands. He's confident that his entire being will be satisfied and his mouth will praise God, right? With his whole body, he's going to praise God. His remembrance leads to his praise. Instead of being, you know, worried and anxious uh, of being in the wilderness, he remembers and he sings praises to God. Um, I've told you before that this is what it is to, to meditate or contemplate in the Christian tradition. Um, you know, many people think of, of meditation as, um, you know, sitting in an awkward position and kind of emptying your mind, right? And, and um, I don't know exactly, but right? Meditation we typically associate with, with an emptying of the mind. But in the Christian tradition, it's the complete opposite. Whenever you see the word, word meditate, uh, as in here in verse 6, when he's meditating upon God, it means to fill your mind. It means to fill your mind with God's word. The word uh, meditate um, comes, for example, in Isaiah 31. It says, as the lion or the young lion growls over his prey. To growl, that's the same word for meditate. Eugene Peterson uh, famously said, you know, meditation is mastication. To meditate is, is to chew on God's word. It's to mull over. It has this fundamental idea of, of to murmur, to say something, to remember. That's what it is to, to meditate. So when we're meditating, we're remembering what God has done in the past. We're remembering what it was to worship in the sanctuary. And so when David remembers this, as he meditates about those experiences, he recalls like, wow, I remember what that it was like, what it was to love God and to be in God's presence. Remember, the ark is where, where God is. That's where he wants to be. And he remembers all that. And so he's able to praise God. He sees hope in his situation because he knows that God has delivered him in the past and he knows and he's confident that God can do it again. He discovered that God's steadfast love is better than life and so he says, I will cling to God. I will cling to God. This word cling, it's the same word that's used when it talks about Adam and Eve, remember? Um, the man shall leave his father and mother and shall cling or cleave to his wife, that's it's the same word. To be, to be, to cling. It's the, it's the word for glue. They will be glued to one another. David wants to be glued to God as he remembers what it is to love God. That's, that's the depth of communion David wants with God. That's the way the contemplative. To, to be so united with God, to be glued with God, and to be in love with God. That's the desire. And so the question I want to ask you today um, it is not how much do you care for the people in your life, not how responsible are you toward your duties and the ministries of the church, not how diligent are you with your own personal spiritual disciplines. Those are, of course, important questions. But today, the more fundamental question I'd like for you to kind of meditate and chew upon is this. What is going on in your heart? Do you earnestly desire God? Is God's steadfast love really better than life? Right? I mean, our lives, it's the most precious thing we have. Can we say as David did, that God's steadfast love is better than that? Or as the apostle Paul put it, Christ in me is to live 
To die is gain. To die is gain. Is that true of your experience? Is this the orientation of our lives? Um, Maybe you want to say yes, or you think you ought to say yes, or you want to be able to say yes, but but it's it's hard to say so, right? It's hard to say that. Because the truth is, as uh, St. Augustine identified centuries ago, we have these, these disordered loves and desires. We want the wrong things, or we want the good things in bad ways, or we want the good things but in the wrong measure, uh, either too much or too little. Uh, until we order our loves, our desires properly, that is to put God first, we can never find peace and happiness. We really can't. Until our, our desires and our loves are ordered properly with God first, uh, the kind of, of peace that we're, we're seeking, uh, it's, just, it's just not possible because that's not the way we were made. And so it's, I think, especially difficult uh, for us in this day and age because we live in a culture that encourages such overgrown appetites and runaway desires. Everything is getting bigger. Our homes are getting bigger even though fewer people live in them. It's not enough now to win millions in the lottery. You have to win the mega millions, right? No one plays when it's merely you know, $10 million. You can only play when it's you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. We have such high ambitions for our own uh, careers. We have ambitions uh, for our children's success. I mean, we, we have such high desires for everything going on in our lives. Yet our desire for God seems so paltry by comparison. In a typical week, don't you have more moments of spontaneous enthusiasm, joy, toward your love of food or the the NBA, the latest movie, video games, gardening, or whatever it is that interests you than toward God. This is not to insist that you lessen your enthusiasm for those things that interest you, but to consider why is it that our desire for God is so puny by comparison? Isn't that true? Why is it that we so rarely experience this kind of all-consuming, even fanatical desire for God, as we heard in Psalm 63, but also in Psalm 42, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Psalm 84, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. C.S. Lewis, in his reflections on the Psalms, said this. These poets, in, in reference to the psalmist, they knew far less reason for loving God than we have. They did not know that he offered them eternal joy, still less that he would die to win, win it for them. Yet they expressed a longing for him, for his mere presence, which comes only to the best Christians or to Christians in their best moments. Isn't that true? The psalmist didn't know about Jesus, not in the full sense that we do. And yet even without that knowledge, they had this yearning, this desire for God. How much more reason we have to be in love with God, to love God, to desire God. But only... In our best moments, do we approach that level of desire? 
this lack is just a sign of our sinfulness, another piece of evidence of our brokenness and the consequence of our disordered loves. William Law said, if you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things and there is no room for the great. We are stuffed with the small things of the world that there is no room for the greatness of God. And I think the contemplatives show us one avenue toward God's greatness and toward our wholeness. Thomas Merton said, contemplation will not be given to those who willfully remain at a distance from God, who confine their interior life to a few routine exercises of piety and a few external acts of worship and service performed as a matter of duty. God does not manifest himself to these souls because they do not seek him with any real desire. Real desire. Do we really want to know God? Do we really want to love God? Or do we just want a small piece? To have a comfortable piece of God. You know, um, thinking about this pathway this week, um, I realized how much more I need this pathway uh, for my own life to keep me grounded. Um, James May in his commentary uh, on this psalm says, in a salvation religion, there is always the danger for believers to take the value of their own lives as the primary reason to trust God. This verse leads us in prayer to the point of devotion to God alone, that must be the goal of all true faith, right? In our salvation faith, there is this constant danger to take the value of our own lives as a primary reason for trusting God. We trust God because we want eternal life. We trust God because we want healing and wholeness and peace in our lives. Um, I don't know about you, um, but when I thought about that and I've been thinking about that, I realized, you know, so much of my prayer is really just asking God for stuff. I'm, I'm just praying for more and more stuff. That's my prayer. Uh, my, my list of prayer requests, it just gets longer and longer every week. Um, you know, I can call it intercession. I can call it pastoral care. Um, to make it sound better. But my prayer times with God is essentially dominated by asking God for stuff. It's good stuff, right? I'm asking for patience, for healing, for guidance, for wisdom, for love, for patience again. I'm asking for good things and I'm asking on behalf of people who ask me to pray for them. But it's just asking for stuff. I spend so little time, I realize, in just simply adoring God. You know, when we, when we teach children to pray, one of the first things we teach them typically is the acronym ACTS as a way of praying, right? A-C-T-S. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Um, but we, we just kind of skip over the adoration and the confession. Maybe we do a little bit of thanksgiving, and then we go right to that supplication. 
And it's like 90% of our prayers is, is supplication. God, help me with this. Give me this. It, like, it's just, that's our prayer life. Or that, that's my prayer life. And, and the contemplatives remind me that I have to seek God first. And if I'm not adoring God first, I mean, that, that tells me there's something not quite right. That if God is just someone I go to because I need stuff, I mean, certainly that, that's a part of it. We, we do need stuff. We need God's help, certainly. But God says, seek me in a time when I can be found. God says, I will be found when you seek me with all your heart. Jeremiah 29. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And Jesus said, seek and you shall find. And so uh, that's my, uh, my challenge to you to, to follow the example of David in the psalm today. To remember God's glory and power. To choose to focus on God today, right now. To choose to offer prayers of adoration. And to spend a little more time with that before we get into all the supplication and the intercession. To simply sit and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, John Calvin says that we can know God by God's works. So you can begin by remembering God's work as a way to adore God. You can go all the way back to creation, if you like, or you can think about the cross, or you can think about something more personal, a time when you experienced the power of God in worship. You know, start there and praise God. Open your mouths and tell others. Set aside that time to simply adore God, to be in God's presence. And I think that that adoration will... It'll transform your life. Winifred Gallagher, uh, in her book, Wrapped, Attention in the Focus Life, says that what you pay attention to fundamentally shapes you. So if if you pay attention to a particular sports team, for example, um, your emotions are going to go up and down depending on how that team does. Uh, In my case, mostly down, as you know. right? But what you pay attention to, it, it shapes who you are and who you become. If you pay attention to what's wrong in your life all the time, then that's going to have a a transforming effect in your life. Because then you're going to assume that every piece of news, every phone call, every email, it's going to, you're looking for the negative right away. And you're just waiting for the next bad piece of news to hit you. But what if instead we, we focus our attention, we choose intentionally to pay attention to God? What if you choose to set your minds on the things above, as Paul says in Colossians. Right now, you can choose to ignore the distractions and pay attention. I know sometimes in worship you hear, you know, babies crying. Maybe you're hearing the fan running. Um, I remember when I was a youth pastor, one of the kids told me they couldn't pay attention to me because I had a food stain on my tie, and that's all they could look at throughout the whole service, Right? Maybe the person sitting next to you has, you know, is wearing perfume and that, that you're being distracted by that, right? Or maybe you're looking at someone's haircut from the back and that's bothering you or whatever. Maybe you've got appointments coming up and you're thinking about those things or you've got an assignment due Monday or a work meeting or, or whatever. Like you've got all kinds of things going on. And it's so easy, even in this moment, just for this, this half hour, this hour, to give your attention wholly and fully to God, to to think about, to meditate, to contemplate 
the beauty of the Lord. But we can make the decision. You can choose right now. And with David, we can pray together. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, earnestly, I seek you. And in the very act of asking and in praying, you're turning your attention toward God. That very act. Even even if you can't, just that asking, you're, you're reorienting your heart into the presence of God. Well, it may be that you find yourself in in a time of wilderness today. Maybe you're thirsty or hungry, fearful, weak. Wherever you may be, with David, we can seek God who alone can satisfy us in times of need, in times of wilderness. Remember what God has done before. Remember the rich banquet that awaits us, that can only satisfy. Take shelter under his wings. Rediscover for yourself the precious, the precious love of God. David says that this steadfast love, this covenantal loyalty that God has for us, this unchanging powerful presence is even better than life. That's the good news for us. You know, as precious and as valuable as life is, and David knew his life is very precious, but he also knew that he could lose it at any moment. He was being hunted down by his own son. So even though he knew that any moment his own life might be lost, he took hope in the fact that God's love would never be lost. That God's love is unchanging. It's the same confidence that the Apostle Paul has when he wrote to the Romans, for I am certain that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Nothing, not even death, will separate us from the steadfast love of God in Jesus Christ. That steadfast love is better than life because it's everlasting. Let's contemplate about that. Let's chew on that. And let's commune with God this week. Let's pray together. God, you have made us for you. And uh, we know that until we find our total satisfaction in you, we will always be restless, always looking for something else to fill that void, to, to satisfy that cannot apart from you. And so God, help us today, this week, to recommit ourselves to loving you, to seek your face, to adore you, to choose you over all else, to gaze upon your beauty, for you are worthy, for you are good. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.